0: hello and welcome to conversations with matt dwyer i'm matt dwyer everyone thank you very much for listening if you're a first-time listener uh this is a music and arts podcast uh and uh, sometimes it veers into uh, activism and activists, but uh, today it's not music or activism. I talk with the great filmmaker Alex Cox. Uh, it's a, it's, I kind of was beside myself that I landed Alex Cox. If, if you're unfamiliar with his work, he's got a huge body of films that he's directed, uh, Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, Walker, Straight to Hell, uh, and he's here to talk about his new film Tombstone Rashomon, which is uh, he sent me a, a screener of and which is it's great uh, find it out there in the world. you can go to alex.alexcox.com and uh, check out more about him. Uh, it's a really fascinating talk and we really explore independent film and filmmaking and it's uh, he's he's great uh, if you if you if you I haven't had a lot of film directors on the film I had Sheer Piven. And, uh, Jordan Vote roberts who did Kong, Skull Island, and I forget his other, he did an indie film tonight. Boys of, something of Summer, Kings of Summer. Um, so, if you like those movies, go listen, uh, those filmmakers, go and listen to those episodes, or peruse my library, I'm nearing 190 episodes I've interviewed some very fascinating people over my lifetime and some some unique, legendary, insightful artists. So please, anyway, enough of that. Uh, check out Tombstone Rashomon, and here's my conversation with the great Alex Cox. Thank you. I, I watch Repo Man, and I, sometimes I don't watch... The movie, I just look at l a and try because it 's changed so much since th- those days, and I feel like that was like such a a different time and what l a must have been like back then must have been truly uh, energetic and fascinating
1: well it was different wasn't it I mean though because the punk scene was very exciting, and those industrial districts that hadn 't been Gentrified or re- repurposed, you know, were very interesting, but it was terribly polluted as well. I and mean, the air in the 1970s and 80s was diabolical, you know. So,
0: <laughs>
1: <it's>, I mean, <laughs> if I've been to Pasadena. I the air was so bad, you know. I think I went one time to go to the Huntington Library, and that was the only time I ever went to Pasadena, you know, until about ten years ago because the air was just terrible. And I would have lived downtown. I would love to live downtown, but again, the air quality was so bad in those days. So that's a change for the
0: better. Yeah, I because uh, I moved here around two thousand, right after nine eleven, and what it, what LA has become, even in that eighteen nineteen years, is vastly like it still was kind of this loose city where like bars didn't really follow the rules and uh, and. It was kind of the, still the wild west in a lot of ways and and not untamed and I, I, I so I would imagined that like the seventies and eighties must have been even more rebellious and free.
1: Oh yeah, I think I mean that was a very good time, obviously starting in the nineteen sixties, but all the way through the sort of from the late fifties to the sixties and seventies and you know, if you lived in Venice, man, and you lived in Venice near the beach, man, you know, it was <laughs> great. <laughs>
0: Uh, how did you... Th- <laughs> Dennis did- Harper was your neighbor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was, was he your neighbor? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I mean, I
1: didn't know him when I lived in Venice, um, but he always had a a, a pied-à-terre in Venice, and then he's building houses, though. He bought one house that was built by Frank Gehry, and then he bought the two houses next to it. It was like a mini land baron. And and then he built this big house that looked like it was made out of stainless steel or aluminum or something uh, adjacent to the Frank Gehry houses. Um, and then he bought the house next door because that had a pool. So he was kind of a mini a mini land baron of <laughs> Venice, California. <laughs> uh,
0: how did you wind up being a part of the uh, L.A. Yeah. punk scene? with?
1: I just went to shows, you know, because I was a student. And so we would do, you know, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to do today? You know, so we'd go to see shows and we went to the mask, you know, and, and, and the, the whiskey and a lot of shows at the Starwood and downtown at Bar, And then also sometimes there would be, you know, concerts, you know, like at, at UCLA or, or Santa Monica Civic. Um, I saw on a gang of four. I saw them at Magic Mountain, you know. So, wow. but that was quite that was quite rare that a punk band would play at a amusement, you know, park.
0: Yeah, Al's Bar is still legendary. Like people still talk about that place. Even people who aren't old enough to go were old enough to go there. It's like that iconic.
1: And it still it still, 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 still exists.
0: Um, I think it's something different now, but I do think it's still because I've yeah. been to whatever it became. I can't remember what it's called though.
1: Yeah, because the Starwood is gone, and I. But that's, I mean but, so other venues appear.
0: Yeah, that's that's actually happening currently in LA. A lot of the old venues that I first went to, or like uh, Spaceland, and uh, is gone. And but it's like you know th- that those scenes always just find new. Places to sprout up and, and, yeah, and yeah. something exciting happens.
1: Yeah, because the mask was a was a moving venue. I mean, I went to the mask in, in two different places, I think. You know, and uh, it was just a name. The name would travel to a different basement.
0: <laughs> I'm always. Uh, do, were you aware? Because I'm always fascinated by eras and these these times, because there's now they're so. Uh, it's such, they're legendary. Did you know that you were in the middle of something special when you were there? No,
1: um, not at all. No, because how would, how could I know, you know, I mean, I just thought it would always be like this. What did I know? You know, it was very, it was like Los Angeles. I didn't know that I was in Los Angeles specifically. I mean, I knew I was, I knew the name of the city, but I thought probably all American cities were like Los Angeles. Cause it, it was the only one I knew.
0: Yeah, that's interesting Because I came from Chicago and New, New York And it's like it, I, it, L.A. is such a unique and different city Than pretty much all the cities That I've experienced in, in America
1: if you, about, if you spend time, though, in Seattle Or in Tucson Or in Phoenix, Scottsdale, Tempe, Metropolis Las Vegas I don't know, I think they're all kind of Reno Denver. <laughs> I mean, they're all kind, of a, I guess kind of a muchness, you
0: know. Yeah, I mostly was like East Coast and like barely in Seattle, but I. Um,
1: Houston, Houston is like if if New Jersey and Los Angeles had a child, you know, it's like <laughs> that bad.
0: Um, and you, what made you transition? Because you came to LA to study film. You went to USC, am I correct, or UCLA? No,
1: UCLA and I was for the first year I was in the um, critical studies department, um, and then at the end of my first year, I transferred to uh, the production school.
0: Oh, so you didn't move to Los Angeles to study film? Yes, I did, but, oh, I was,
1: okay. but it was critical studies. You see, I got a grant for the first year that I was in at UCLA. I got a grant, a Fulbright grant, to to study film. Um, I didn't have a piece of work to submit, and in order to be considered for the film school the production, you had to have a piece of work that you put forward as an example of what you would do, and I didn't have any, so um, I applied instead to be in the critical studies program, thinking that thinking that the two, there was a lot of overlap between the two, and I'd meet production people, and, and then it was very easy to switch after my first year, so.
0: Was it easier to work your way into the f- film industry then? It seems like, than it would be, say, nowadays.
1: Yeah, I think so, because I think now the industry does seem to be pretty dominated or fill- filled up with the children of people who, or the grandchildren of people who've been in the industry ahead of them, you know. So, and there's only so many films and only so many crew positions, and, um, like, I mean, years ago, 15 years ago or something, did you ever see a movie called Moon?
0: Uh, I don't think I have.
1: It was a nice little movie about a guy, a guy on the moon who, turns, who discovers, two, you know, well, I won't say to spoil the story, but it's like the only man in a little kind of base on the, on the moon who's supposed to be doing stuff, you know, digging up minerals and things. And, you know, a nice little science fiction movie, about three and a half million bucks, you know. And you'd think that's the kind of low-budget movie that one would reasonably wish to be doing. Well, good luck, because the director of the movie was the son of David Bowie, and the producer was the wife of Sting. You know, and that's how competitive and how nepotistic the film business is.
0: And you've been working out to, even your early films. Were they? Still, somewhat outside of the system, or were those more in the studio world?
1: Well, the first
0: film that I, the first feature that I did
1: uh, called Repo Man was uh, financed by a studio, but uh, has a negative pickup, which meant that they didn't get to see the film until it was almost finished, and they just agreed to buy it on the basis of the screenplay. And the the guy who organised that was the executive producer, Michael Nesmith. And I've only done one other film for a studio, and that was the same, the same deal, a negative pickup. So you, you make the film, and then, then they take it off your hands and reimburse you, as opposed to a you know, traditional uh, studio project, where I imagine there would be more hands-on and more involved in the process.
0: And, then, and pretty much from that point on, you started working outside and funding your own or finding ways to fund films yourself?
1: (laughs) Funding my own, I wish. No, I wouldn't. No no studio studio would hire me after Walker, man. (laughs) Have you ever seen Walker?
0: You know, I was trying to find it before I interviewed you and uh, uh, my TV broke, so I had to find it. uh, My TV literally broke like last week and I haven't been, and I was trying to stream it and I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. It was driving me insane. Criterion?
1: Are Criterion streaming it?
0: Uh, I didn't find it Maybe they are And I screwed up oh, Maybe
1: they're not Maybe they're not I mean they only brought out A DVD So it could be They didn't even Put a stream up I don't know um, But that, but they would be The guys who have I imagine Have the US Streaming rights Anyway it's worth seeing But it's a. it was a film Made in Nicaragua At a time That the United States Was at war With Nicaragua And so I didn't get To do any more Studio films After
0: that <laughs> Was that was that specifically that that helped stop that part of your career? Because well, was, I think so. You have to see, Walker. I, have to see I, Walker. I feel bad that I haven't. It was my I revisited a bunch of your stuff, and it was the one I couldn't get to or find, and I uh, I feel horrible about it.
1: Most important film I did, best film I made. Anyway, but never mind about that. The uh, because you have seen Tombstone Rashomon.
0: Yes, I have, and I uh, was. I thought it was great, and it's beautifully shot. And I was, I did some research on that, and I was. That was f- f- uh, funded through uh, crowd crowd sourcing, right? Part, it
1: was partially crowdsourced, and then we just didn't have enough money. When we done the the uh, crowdfunding, we didn't we didn't have enough money to make it, and luckily. The guys who have been working with Oliver Stone on his most recent documentaries, the executive producers of those films, came in and and gave us, you know, sufficient money to actually make the picture. So it was partly crowdfunded, but it also had like regular financiers. Um,
0: how how long did it take for you to shoot that? Because just from what I saw, oh, oh go ahead, I'm mm-hmm. sorry.
1: just. From no, no. From what you saw,
0: what? Oh, of like what I studied that that you did it pretty uh, low budget, and uh, I saw you speaking. I think it was at DePaul University. You were talking about it, and uh, oh, okay. That uh, yeah, that just that it was pretty pr- done, pretty uh, low budget, and with uh, certain just uh, parameters.
1: The main parameter was just shooting two units at once and sometimes three units at once, which was something that I'd only really done once before. I'd done it for a little while on on Walker, but the cinematographer, David Bridges, didn't really like it because he felt that he wasn't, obviously, he wasn't getting to manage the visual aspect to the extent that he wanted so I hadn't really run two units simultaneously since then, but because we had very low budget and limited time, I uh, I thought I could split up the shooting of Tombstone Rashomon into two parts, the interview parts where the participants in the gunfight talk about their experiences and the actual gunfight itself and the, and the run-up to it. So I would be with Unit A doing the gunfight and doing the... Uh, the saloon scenes and the other scenes with the actors and a different unit, The second unit would be um, working with a different director, different cinematographer shooting these interviews but really shooting them in that very traditional corny, you know, hang up a green kind of, I mean, I'm sorry, hang up a gray mottled screen behind the, uh, behind the subject, you know, and, and get them to look down the barrel of the camera um, style yeah, it's... So, there was two, so there was two different crews running simultaneously. And when they finished um, their work, they would come over and join us and, and be second camera on, on the first unit.
0: Is there uh, less or more pressure when it's that kind of situation opposed to, uh, say, doing a studio film? I think if you were doing a studio film, you would be working at a much slower pace.
1: Um, because studio films tend to have quite large crews and plan. I don't even know if you were doing a big budget visual effects movie. I don't even know how many pages a day they plan to do. You know, but I mean, a, a regular movie maybe would aim for like three pages in the course of a day. Uh, a studio picture less than that probably especially if there are location moves or people are spending a long time in, in makeup or have other concerns. Sometimes actors only want to work a certain number of hours a day. You know, if they're big stars, they can, they can kind of dictate things. And if you're working in the independent sphere, you actually can go faster than that. And I think going speedily is better than going slowly not in terms of driving on the highway but in terms of making a film
0: <laughs> do you because I, f- I feel like there's an element of punk attitude with your films not I, I, I'm abusing that term I think loosely but like the DIY sort of do-it-yourself do you feel like there that was something that you've learned f- from the early days of your punk scene where people would just be like, all right, we're going to do this and make it happen? This- I think it
1: was the same philosophy, because when we made Repo Man, uh, the casting director, Vicky Thomas, had never cast a movie before. Uh, she was another student at UCLA, and we all wanted to be directors. And But also, I mean, I really liked Vicky, and I liked, you know, a lot of my colleagues at UCLA, and so I said, well, work on the film in some other capacity, and she said, well, what can I do? And I said, well, be the casting director, you know, and so she goes, okay, I'll give it a go, and now she's like this big-time Hollywood casting director, you know, and and there were other people who, for whom Repo Man was their first feature, Robert Richardson, who's now a big-time cinematographer, you know, um shot JFK, among other films, and and yet we all got our start on this low budget uh, punky feature where we all essentially nominated ourselves. The producers hadn't produced a movie before. I hadn't directed a feature before. Um, we were all just finding our way, and also nominating ourselves and saying we could do it. You know, saying okay, I'm capable of doing this. Let's go. Uh, and that was a. And so I see what you mean in the in the in the similar sense to like McLaren deciding to turn the uh, the clothing store into a rock and roll band, you know, um, and 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 these guys coming along and saying, "Well, I can do that, you know. I can be in a band even if I can't play an instrument, you know." And and uh, I
0: because
1: the only one of the piss. The only one of the pistols who could play was Glenn Mallock, I think, at the beginning. And then the others all learned.
0: That's cr- that's crazy. But that was, I mean, yeah. that's, and that became the even the aesthetic in, in the 80s uh, New York scene where people were, it was more of just trial and error in front of people. And <clears throat> did you feel like you learned a, an in- exceptional amount from Repo Man that you, that took you carried into the rest of your other films because it was such a raw or new experience
1: i think i learned mostly about writing about being a screenwriter on repo man i had i was fortunate because i had good actors good crew very good very talented people um uh, robbie muller was a cinematographer um some of the casts were just wonderful. And and so in a way, I could just be there. You know, as long as I showed up, it would be okay, you know. And I think I probably started to learn to be a film director, you know, to really to be a director on Straight to Hell, which is my third feature.
0: Yeah, also a great one. And... Uh... Oh, thank you. It was, it was more work. It was
1: more. It it was more work, and it had to be done more quickly, and and it was more fun.
0: Hi, I'm going to take a break from the conversation real quickly, just to say, if you can, please subscribe to the show, write a review, and rate it on iTunes. That will greatly help me. Also, if you really like the show and you want to become a bigger part of the. Conversations with Matt Dwyer community, you can become a Patreon subscriber at uh, patreon.com slash dwyer. And you can go to all things uh, Matt Dwyer. You can go to the themattdwyer.com and find links to social media, merchandise, and everything. I am solely an independent artist putting out this podcast. I don't have a network. I don't have a lot of commercial money so word of mouth telling your friends writing about my show on social media or rate rating it and reviewing it all help me greatly or become a patreon subscriber at com slash conversations with Dwyer now let's get back to the conversation I wanted to go back to uh, Tombstone Rushman because I wanted I was interested in how that idea came about because it's a very unique idea and it's also it's I don't know if one would say it's an homage, but there's Tombstone and Rashomon, uh, you know, referencing two great films and bring sort of... Uh, i was just curious how that idea came about.
1: Well, it's really... I mean, obviously, the Rashomon reference is clearly a reference to Rashomon. Um, but the Tombstone uh, designation is the name of the town where the gunfight at the O.K. Corral occurred. It can also be called O.K. Corral Rashomon. Um... I think Tombstone is an okay film, you know, but I don't think it's the exemplary film about that that incident. If you think about John Ford's *My Darling Clementine*, have you seen that?
0: I, I did, but not since I was a. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. A tie humiliated, and
1: because just for the visual aspect, it is a black and white. the black and white photography is so beautiful. There are things, there are images in that in that film, interiors. Look Look at their lip by oil latch, you know. But the the beauty of them is just incredible, the stark contrast. Um, so it's not only a magnificently short film, um, takes place in Monument Valley, um, which you can't beat, and it has this guy Victor Mature playing Doc Holiday. And it's amazing because. Doc Holiday was an emaciated, scrawny, angry, you know, quivering little guy. And Victor Mature is six foot four and built like Tarzan, you know. Um, and he pulls it off totally. He completely pulls it off playing Doc Holiday because he was a very, very good actor. And. So anyway, so the genesis of the thing is that I was always interested in stories about the gunfight at the O.K. Corral, or just outside the corral, that took place in uh, Tombstone in 1881, I think it was. Uh, and I followed this, I read a couple of books about it. I'd read Wyatt Earp's autobiography, or biography by Stuart Lake. I had seen the movies, and always wanted to make a movie about the subject myself, and never really knew what the format should be. I was suspicious of Wyatt Earp. I didn't think he was necessarily the hero that he was portrayed in, in, in movies. But I wasn't, didn't really have a horse in the race, and so I, I just started reading about it and, and learned a fair amount about the historical events. as a whole bunch of interesting texts and books about, you know, not novelizations, but actually histories of it, but from different parties and perspectives, from the perspective of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and the the law and order banker crowd, the Republicans in town, and also from the perspective of Ike Clanton and the Cowboys and the McLowries, the country guys who were the Democrats. Mm -hmm. Um, So along with everything else, all the other complications of the story was this this there was a partisan battle going on between the two factions. And there were two newspapers in town, one of which took the side of the Erbs, the Democrats, I mean the Republicans, and one of which took the side of the Cowboys, the Democrats. So the whole thing broke down in this very neat way, and yet everybody contradicted everybody else in their testimony after the event. And that in itself became very interesting because I wasn't the person... Who could say definitively whether Kate Haroni had watched the uh, the gunfight from the window of the photography studio or not? She said she did um, I can't certainly guarantee that anything Doc Holiday said was true. I would kind of doubt it. Um, and as for the rest of them, you know, they all contradict each other. Clanton contradicts up. Um, They wouldn't even let Doc Holliday give testimony at the hearing after the, after the event because he was so volatile. But he was later interviewed by reporters in Colorado when he'd been kidnapped by a bounty hunter who was trying to extradite him back to Arizona to stand trial for these crimes. So it's all very convoluted and very complicated, and the rationale. Format which Kurosawa, of course, used
0: in his magnificent film is is a good way to do it. Wow, Uh, fascinating. I'm wondering what, uh, because you grew up in England, what drew you so much to Westerns?
1: Oh, we love that stuff. Well, we did in those days. I mean, I think now they probably love other other stuff, you know. When I was growing up, it was like the last gasp, not only of the American cowboy film, there were movies like The Wild Bunch, um, but the Italian Western was big, you know, as when I was a young cinema goer. And so uh, the first Italian Western I saw was for a few dollars more. Whoa, what a good film, you know. And, 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 and like you say about looking at movies, not so much for the story as for something else. I found myself looking at these Italian Westerns not for the story, but for the locations, for the desert that they were shot in, you know, and starting to recognize land, landscapes and land formations.
0: Yeah. And that was really fun. Um, I feel like the way Sergio, Sergio Leone did shot films would, could not... Uh, Once Upon a Time in... Uh, is it Once Upon a Time in the West? I can't. I'm screwing up the title. Yeah, Once
1: Upon a Time in the West is a cowboy one.
0: Yes. The the opening of that film is so tense, but but it's so slow and paced. And I, it, I'm like, would anyone even dare to open a film that way these days? It's pretty crazy. It? It's. Yeah. I mean, the first time I saw it, because I actually I'd seen a lot of his films, and the first time I seen it, I saw it late in life, and I just was. I was. I had to go back and start it over again because I couldn't believe how slow and paced it was, and yet so tense. And I'm like, no one would do this today.
1: <laughs> it would be hard. if they really pulled it off. Um, it's 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 yeah, as like you say, it's it's an amazing sequence, and it's everything in harmony. I mean, it's a great director, great cast, fantastic art direction, you know, brilliant cinematography.
0: I know music. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you feel like that maybe music has become too intermingled in, in film? Because I feel like sometimes, not always, but say like Scorsese will use pop, like not pop music, but, you know, rock music or pop music and and it works. But sometimes I feel like people use it as a, I don't know, it seems like, it's almost being lazy to be like well if I throw in this disco song everybody's gonna know it's the 70s
1: <laughs> yeah no I saw. I mean it's funny because I just last week I watched two Russian war movies from the last few years I watched a movie called The Breast The Breast Fortress uh, which is really good um, and has very little music um, and I saw another movie called The Battle for Sevastopol which isn't really about that it's about this a Russian woman sniper in the Second World War who had killed like 309 Nazis um, and went on a kind of goodwill tour of the United States. So it's it's you know they kind of tell it by calling it the Battle of Sevastopol. It's really about this woman, but but the film both has a the other one, The Breast Fortress, is like a straightforward narrative, but the um, the Battle of Sevastopol is like a flashback structure, flashbacks within flashbacks. Which, I, which after a while gets, gets to be annoying and music, music, music oh my you know, it's like music in film you know and at and two points in the film they actually have like a song playing while the thing's going on a pop singer, you know so it becomes almost like a, a pop video you know and so yeah, music can be abused in films or really? as it is in most part time in the West it can be used brilliantly
0: yeah, I feel too like music of its era when uh, like Scorsese does or even like the your films, they it works and it's part of the character almost of the film. It 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 makes sense. Yeah. When it's not gratuitous. Definitely. Definitely, but also
1: it can be lazy. It can also be lazy filmmaking because you can have something that you say is set in the '60s and you throw Beach Boys at it, you know, (laughs) or whatever, or or whatever the budget can afford. You know, that would be a studio film. Um, You know, we'd have to find something a little more, a little on the cheaper side to represent the '60s. Yeah,
0: I don't. I don't know if it's. I just notice music more because I'm an avid in film. But if if it doesn't like, it can take me out of the picture. If it's not, yeah, and definitely. Yeah. Did, did with, with Repo Man, I just did, I, I, sorry, I keep going back. I just was one thing I was fascinated by is that, was there anything as punk as that film when that came out? Or was that sort of uh, the breakthrough with p- sort of the punk culture and cinema?
1: simultaneously with our movie Penelope Spearis directed Suburbia the other LA punk movie um she was shooting at the same time as we were uh, I think on one occasion we even saw their crew across the other side of the LA river and uh Suburbia came out around about the same time. It's, as I recall, I, mean, I think it was her first feature. She made Decline of Western Civilization, but it was her like, first narrative dramatic feature. Um, I recall it being pretty good. Uh, if anything, though, it was more serious. It's a bit kind of gloomy, perhaps. And so it wasn't, you know, and it didn't really have quite, quite as much of a rock and roll thing going. But it's a good film. I mean, as I recall, it was it was it was interesting that these two films got made almost simultaneously in LA about the same scene.
0: That's crazy. I didn't know that. I know of *Suburbia*, and I definitely know her work. I just at that one, I've never been able to see.
1: My hey, it's definitely worth watching, I and mean, it's a bit under. If you think about the the success of *Slacker*, I mean, I definitely think that Richard Linklater saw *Suburbia*. You
0: know. Oh, that's interesting.
1: Um, there's some, but but
0: see what you think. Um, are there young indie filmmakers right now that are exciting to you?
1: Boy, I don't even know. You know, I mean, I'm sitting here in 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 lockdown watching watching Russian war movies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just because I. I, I'm a weirdo, and I don't. I have very distinct taste, and I get that I'm not like everybody else with what I like, and I do like smaller, more independent films. And I get uh, the Marvel stuff drives me insane, and that's just I get it. Uh-huh. Uh, but but like guys like Sean Baker who did uh, Tangerine and uh, Florida Project, like I'm like oh my god, that it's like really exciting filmmaking to me. And I just didn't. Know I that.
1: think any kind of filmmaking that comes along that isn't generic, you know, that isn't just like you've seen before, because that's another problem with the Russian war movies—they use the same language as the American war movies. It's the language of, um, Saving Private Ryan or, you know, so when there's an action sequence, they'll like speed it up and it'll be, it'll be kind of washed out and high contrast, you know, but then freeze <laughs> frame it it'll be a slow motion and some blood and then again, running, 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 you know, and it's a kind of a visual, um, stereotype, which interestingly, you know, on either side of the globe, um, we're using the same film language, and I wonder if the Chinese cinema is using the same language of action movies, the same language of romantic comedies. You know, if at any time we can break out of the break out of the stereotypical film language and tell a story in a
0: in a a, a
1: different and original way, is good.
0: Why do you think it's so hard for that to happen for people to break? Uh, it's like if any time I watch a mob movie they can't help but reference Goodfellas. And I'm like, it's like, I'm like, why is, why did they not go, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this?
1: Finance it. lack of imagination on the part of the executive producers or the financiers who who choose the directors and choose people who will be compliant and will deliver something that they recognize.
0: Does that seem more prevalent in film today than perhaps it once was? Because you look at the 70s. Yes. In the eighties, yeah, there was, that,
1: there was that brief, there was that brief chunk of time, really, which came in with Roger Corman and AIP. Sort of, they they broke the the old system because prior to Corman and AIP coming along, the studio had a lot on distribution you know, and so the, you know, the MPA and all that, the the in-house censorship of films and stuff was all a lock of the studios. Um, And then along came these independent producers, AIP, who who said, we're just going to make a whole load of movies for drive-ins, you know, and they started throwing these movies out and they need directors. And Roger Coleman, I can direct 20 films a year if necessary, you know, and, and does it. And they just, busted that that cozy system that the studio the studios had, had controlled. And then out of that world came Dennis Hopper and Easy Rider, and, and the studios then started to take gambles. Very briefly, they gambled on low-budget, interesting films with interesting directors like Monty Hellman and Francis Coppola and, and uh, other, you know, really interesting filmmakers, you know. So, yeah, that lasted, didn't it, through into the 1980s.
0: And it makes makes me wonder, like, how come there aren't more... Now that it's easier to make films, you know, if Cassavetes could kill himself to make his movies, and you work very hard to make your movies, it seems like... And and that now that it's easier to shoot things, like I've referenced Tangerine earlier, the guy shot it on his iPhone, and it's... uh, I, I, which I'm always skeptical when they say that but he actually did <laughs> and it's like it's a, it seems like people would be more inspired to make films since you could now edit stuff on your computer and it seems like there isn't as much independent film as we should be getting.
1: Well there probably is a lot or there was I don't think there's any more but there was for a while there was a lot of independent film because as you say it's very easy to make a film you can shoot a film on your phone and edit it on your laptop you know um there is a certain expectation, though, um, by the audience that a film will have a certain look or be of a certain standard. Um, the financiers, regular movie financiers, would very much like the film to have known actors in the film, as opposed to people who haven't done, you know, haven't been movie stars before. And so there are a lot of limitations, and the more you get it. It and, the, and the more you, you and, and it isn't just about the films, you know, the stock inverted commas, the SD card that goes in the in the DSLR. Um, it isn't just about that. It's about paying the actors, um, paying the crew, um, getting all the other equipment that you need, getting the vehicles to transport them there, finding somewhere for them to be while you shoot. Now having the uh, the medical. Uh, you know, the medical supremo on set with his or her two assistants to perform the COVID tests on the crew on day one and on the actors three times a week. Um It's all you know. Making a film starts to balloon and become more complicated. You know, even though the the means of production are are in everybody's
0: hands. Yeah. Um I. I... I was wondering why like uh there's certain directors who are able to stay v- vibrant and relevant and uh, throughout the years and others who become uh sort of antiquated and I wonder if you have any insight of how that is because I I've seen you speak, I've watched like a bunch of your videos of you speaking and you are to- completely in the present and progressive and I feel like some filmmakers get really locked in or just artists in general get locked in to the past and they're like this is the way it should be and I'm wondering why that why some people are still uh, able to be uh, be, still remain relevant I don't know if that was too complicated well I think that's
1: very nice of you to say that I am the present that's almost like being in the moment right (laughs) yes if we can achieve that I don't to worry about anything at all I just I, everything's just hand, handy dandy. Yeah.
0: yeah. I saw you because you were speaking about Peck and Paw and I was fascinated by it because you were saying how you understand that younger people today can't relate to those films. And I know a lot of people who work in film and they're like, those are the great films and like they they refuse to step out of the past and, and see what is happening now. And I, I was really blown away by how you like shed this light on Peck and Paw and how uh, you, you know how yeah the younger generation doesn't get it and that's great and we need to move on
1: <laughs> I mean it's interesting because you see a lot of films a lot of films from the past not all of them but a lot of films from the past you know when, whenever the past was are very very sexist and I'm not like a woke person, you know, I've given up being perfectly correct, I'm sick of it now but, but even so I, I, I you see Peg Part's films and he doesn't like women, he doesn't understand women, doesn't get along with them, treats them badly and or, or at least their characters in the films um, and, and the only two, and there's no excuse for it, you know, we are in a different you know, we are more intelligent than that you know and, and both of them were indulged by a time when that kind of thinking was commonplace to disrespect women and to and and to think that guys were like just the bee's knees, you know. Um, so so things must change. Everything changes, doesn't it? Think of some of the punk rock songs that we used to listen to that we wouldn't dare dare mention in polite company now. <laughs>
0: Uh, sp- sp- several came to mind quite quick <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah that's I just I've revisited some Peckinpah like a few years ago and I was like wow there's an awful lot of rape in these movies like it's almost and, a- you know that,
1: and in movies and not only in Peckinpah movies I mean it's interesting I was talking to my friend Pablo Kjolseth of the International Film Series in um, in Boulder. Um, about some film, that oh, what a pity this film had to rely on a rape in order for the blah, blah, blah. And we're talking about, yeah, and I know another film that was like that that was really bullshit. And then, and all of a sudden, it occurs to me, oh, shit, my favorite Western of all time um, for a few dollars more is exactly the same it's another one of these films where they have a rape scene just to provide motivation for the for one of the subsidiary characters, you know. And and so everything is our uh, thinking, you know, has is i think that anything is possible. And I mean when we were, when I was teaching film at Boulder, Colorado, I would say to the students, you can make a film about anything. There was a list of, of things that they thought they weren't allowed to make films about. They weren't allowed to make films about drug use, alcohol use, sexual situations, or bungee jumping. Um, And, you know, and I said, that isn't true. You know, but that list which you have acquired uh, is a list of things which are potentially problematic or dangerous during the shoot. And so if you're going to have firearms, if you're going to have a scene involving drugs or alcohol, if you're going to have the characters having sex or bungee jumping, then um, you have to provide a risk assessment that says how are you going to deal with it safely and so in fact you know if you address the issue and you say well okay there is a rape in this or there is some other you know very uh, inappropriate and horrible thing happening in the film you know it's legitimate to the story and I'm going to deal with it this way you know you just have to think about it
0: yeah how do you feel because uh, there are so many films that are have moments like uh, Holiday Inn is the first one that you know where Bing Crosby's in Blackface, there's a ton of those f- moments in film that are uh, racist I mean even the I believe it's the searchers is, gets pretty uh, pretty racist, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Well, and,
1: and the search you can say, well, the Searchers is a film about a racist, isn't it? and And again, they set it up in this in the normal kind of stereotypical way where the 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 Indians really are total savages who who do unspeakable things to white women and stuff like that but but you know so it is a kind of a stereotypical one sided perspective of you know of the war against the against the indians and and yet the character of Ethan Edwards is indeed um, a racist. He hates Indians. He's an ex-Confederate. He's a robber. He's just stolen a whole bunch of Mexican gold. Um, Now, the thing is, though, the Hollywood, again, the Hollywood film industry has traditionally kind of romanticized the Confederacy. You know, if you think about the whole history of of the way the Confederacy is portrayed, even down to like the outlaw Josie Wales, Clint Eastwood, you know, they they get kind of a free ride. Um Richard Harris's character in Major Dundee, they always played Gary Cooper's character in Veracruz, always chivalrous, you know, always kind of charming patrician white guys, you know. And so there's a whole bunch of re- re-evaluation and, and revisionist Westerns to be made now and other films, revisionist films in general, which, which address these issues, but not in a sentimental way and not in a way that says, okay, we're going to replace one kind of intolerance with another kind of intolerance, you know, one kind of binary thinking with another kind of binary thinking, because everything is very complicated.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's some people who argue that we should, you know, never show these films again, and I, I honestly don't know how I feel about that because uh, I'm a middle-aged white guy, <laughs> so I, I, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. What is your thought on it?
1: I don't think I think everything should be. Um, well, I guess no. I guess probably everything should not. Be. Because there are, are some things like cruelty to children and cruelty to animals which are inappropriate, should not be part of our general discourse or entertainment. But I think that um, beyond that, man, everything should be up for discussion. Everything should be, nobody should be cancelled, you know, and even even if it's Lenny Riefenstahl or, or that stupid. Griffith film that they made us watch, what was it called? The Klansman. Oh, you yeah, had yeah, to watch it at a film store. It's really stupid and bad, you know. Um, I don't think I mean we saw that in a in a in a class of a hundred students with of all races and everybody thought it was rubbish. Um, so I don't think anybody was... But there was a different time. That was the late 1970s, you know. People perhaps didn't articulate things as much. Um, people didn't, didn't like, go all sensitive, you know, so quickly. But I do think that... I think that if you're going to show the birth of a nation or if you're going to show the uh, outlaw Jersey Wales or something, you need to contextualize it and say, you know, if you don't want to see Clint Eastwood playing a, a heroic confederate, I understand. Um, I'll assign you a different film. You can go and watch Frank Perry's doc instead. You know. Right.
0: Um, I just I feel uh, before we wind it up, I feel a need to because when I referenced Rashomon and Tombstone, I I wasn't meaning the film Tombstone, and I felt bad about that. i and I. <laughs> oh no!
1: I'm sorry. I mean, no, but a lot of people really like Tombstone. Oh Tombstone's no! I know, but really
0: I. It's popular. Yeah, I just meant the story of. That story, I just I felt bad because I, I didn't articulate that well and uh, and I'm I grew up Irish Catholic working class so uh, I of course I'm going to feel bad about something small and
1: <laughs> hey hey all my brother all my brothers in law are, are, are Irish Catholic working class boys who are feeling guilty about something even as we speak. <laughs>
0: Uh, it's a horrible, a and I'm
1: a and I'm a working class Protestant from England, man. I'm not only do I feel guilty, but I'm also condemned and predestined to hell. <laughs> oh.
0: Um I was. Curi- <laughs> I was just curious, though, what uh, if there's anything new that you're working on that you're developing, and uh, because uh, I, I do. Firmly believe you're an exciting filmmaker and uh, we can always use more Alex Cox films.
1: Well, thank you. Well, I was doing, I mean, I was working on a couple of things before we all got shut down in in March. I was working on a television series, or or um, they're not called television series anymore, are they? They're called internet based series or whatever. But I was working on one of those. And also, I've reacquired the rights, the U.S. rights, to Repo Man. And so I've got this. Um, very very dark sequel to Repo Man, which takes place 30 minutes after the previous um, the previous uh, movie ended, um, and so I was going to I've just been playing around with those things in uh, in lockdown and waiting for some forward movement to occur at some point in my my future, our future. Um, and also, I've been doing a video. I've been doing this video for Xander Schloss.
0: How is that? That's uh, that's ex- he. I used to bartend at a bar, and he and... Uh, uh, who's the gentleman? He was doing a duo, acoustic duo with some other gentleman, and uh, it was every Sunday night at this bar I worked at, and it was incredible. And it was, it was a very downtown dumpy bar, <laughs> and it was very... Yeah,
1: now... I, I can't remember the name of his. I know he had a. Uh, he, he used to be in a be in a band with a guy called Wally Cronin. But this was after that. This, yeah, this, this was after be, Wally. This yeah. would be
0: like mid thousand five two thousand somewhere in that maybe a little later. But it was. I a, think that. Oh, it was just a gift to be hmm? you know work at this bar and have those guys play every Sunday, and they packed right. it in, and I made a lot of money.
1: <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you should talk to Xander because he can tell you about it. It's been shot by a buddy of his who's like a really talented cinematographer called like Anthony. Um, and obviously, a, because we're all locked down in different places, there's a green screen aspect to it. So I've been finding green screen backgrounds of, of like nuclear, nuclear testing in Nevada and other exciting you know, background images. And... So we're slapping all that together. But if you want to talk to Xander, I, I'll put you in touch with him and you can, you can ask him in Poison House.
0: I would love to. Um, and most importantly, where can people find Tombstone Rashomon? It's, uh, it's great. I really enjoyed the film. So thank you for sharing that with me.
1: Hey, not at all. And I think in theory, it's actually in Walmart, you know. You know when they have that, that, that bin full of, full of movies like five ninety nine, and all these Westerns in there. And it's one of those Westerns.
0: Well, then I uh, just go to. <laughs> is it uh, because of the COVID? Is it? It's got to be streaming, right? Or is it not?
1: They're going to stream it. I don't know if they started streaming it yet, but I think for some reason they didn't do it at the same time as the DVD release. I don't know why. And do you have... But it is going. It is supposed to be streaming at some point.
0: Yes. Is there a website or anything people can go and look at more, more about you? There's a bunch
1: of stuff related to Tombstone Rashomon and me. I, yeah, I, I had this website called alexcox.com, funnily enough. And if you, if you go there, then you get, you get dragged to the kind of the updated WordPress equivalent of it. And, uh, and there's a bunch of stuff about Tombstone Rashomon there and some Repo Man stuff. And also a bunch of stuff about Bruegel.
0: Great. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. And I thank you very much for your time. It has been uh, an honor, and I am grateful.
1: Hey, it's very nice
0: talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Remember to rate and review it. And if you like, become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash conversationswithdwyer. Also, listen to my friend's podcast Hunk by Mike Bridenstine and Kill Gallon's Pub with Joe Gallon. Thank you so much for listening. I look forward to seeing you again.